If you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 16 in Matthew chapter 5. This is the word of the Lord. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we thank you for your many mercies and kindnesses to us, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you have brought us to this day. Thank you, Lord, for the hearing ear and the seeing eye. We pray, Lord, that as your word is preached, Lord, that your glory is revealed to us. And Lord, that you would bring understanding to us by the work of your spirit in us. Father, may this be for your glory and honor in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. When our Lord Jesus was praying the night before he was to be crucified, in John chapter 17, in that prayer, he prays for his disciples. He prays for the ones that are alive at the moment, and then he prays for those who will become his disciples through their ministry. He was praying for every Christian. If you are a Christian today, Jesus was praying for you on the night before he was taken and arrested and then executed on the cross the next day. One of the things that he prays in John 17, 15 to the Father, he says, Father, I do not pray that you should take them, the disciples, out of the world. They are in the world but they are not of the world. And that distinction of them being in the world, but not of the world, is a proper distinction of how we as his disciples are to think of ourselves. What is the relationship of a Christian to the world? What is the relationship of a church, a church of Christians to the world? How are we to see ourselves in society and in culture? Well, this has been a subject of much study and debate over the course of 2,000 years of Christian history. In 1951, there was a book written by a man named Richard Niebuhr, a very famous ethicist. It was called Christ and Culture. And what he tried to do was a historical survey of Protestant evangelical Christianity to see what what Christians have done, how Have Christians seen their relationship to the world? And in this book, Christ of Culture, 
that became a classic, a bestseller, reprinted multiple times, Niebuhr identified five different ways that Christians have conceived of their relationship to the world. He put them in categories like this. Christ against culture. That basically says that the world, it's bad, it's evil, we've been saved from the world, and we just try to stay away from the world. Or Christ above culture that has a very pietistic attitude that says that there are good things in the world, but it is only because of the gospel, and so we don't really have to have much engagement with the world. But we appreciate the good that is there. Or Christ of culture that sees just sees a little difference between the church and the world. And we are all in this together. So we try to accommodate and ultimately compromise what the gospel is. Another one would be Christ transforming culture, where we believe that every institution should be radically transformed by the power of the gospel. Politics and education and arts and everything should be attacked as being in need of transformation. And then the last one he described was Christ in culture in paradox, in which there is a realization that there are structures in society that are ordained that are good, And those who are Christians try to work within them, acknowledging their goodness, but there are other things in society that have arisen because of sin and evil, and they're just wicked, and they they need to be resisted. And well, those five categories, they were just one man's way of trying to think through the question, and I'm by no means advocating all of his reasoning or conclusions in that book, for he held many erroneous views about the Christian faith. But it's an important question, regardless of how you categorize it. Every serious Christian has to think about it. Every church has to think about it. We have to think about it carefully. What is our relationship to the world? How are we to relate to Broken Arrow, to Tulsa and Wagner counties, to Oklahoma, to the United States, to all the nations on earth? How are we to relate to society? especially as we see society going further and further away from what we have known, even many of us in our own lifetimes, to be far healthier than the direction it seems we are going right now. What should we do? Should we engage culture as warriors so that we say, man, this is bad, this is evil? Are we going to become politicians? Are we going to become educators? become artists so that we can capture and declare war on everything that is wrong? There is a cultural warrior mindset that exists among many Christians today. Or should we look at culture and see ourselves as servants? And we look at every problem that there is and try to meet those problems and needs and try to address whatever circumstances we see with the resources that we have because we believe as a church we are servants Or should we be cultural monastics and just see the world as lost and on its way to hell and we're going to try to stay untouched from the world? And so we live in our conclaves like the monastics did in the Middle Ages. Or should we try to engage culture with a sense of being its companion, 
So we just come alongside the world and work together for good things without making much distinction between Christian and non-Christian. The question is, what does it look like to live effectively as a disciple of Jesus in a world that is broken? How should we see ourselves individually and then as a church? What posture should we take? What attitude should we have? Well, to answer that question biblically, I want to direct our attentions to Jesus in the sermon, the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is recorded for us in Matthew's chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the first book of the New Testament. And I want to take just a few words from Matthew chapter 5 early in that sermon for us to consider this afternoon. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, from Jesus' message that he preached on the mountainside. Follow along as I read that again in our hearing. Our Lord said to his disciples, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Christ calls his disciples to positively influence the world for the glory of God. And that's what these two metaphors that Jesus uses here require of us. He is using salt and light to call us to influence the world positively, eternally, redemptively, so that the glory will come to God. And these two metaphors teach us about the nature of a disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Salt and light help us to understand that and answer that question. They also teach us to understand the nature of the world. Salt and light tell us something about the culture, the world in which we live as disciples in the world, not of the world. In our Lord's words here, too, we find a warning and an exhortation. And all these things help us to think more carefully, more accurately about how Christians are to live in the world to represent Jesus in the ways that he has prescribed. Now let's look at this text together. First of all, I want to call your attention that Jesus' disciples are like salt in a decaying world. When he employs the metaphor of salt, he's telling us something about the nature of the world as well as about the nature of his disciples. Now in the ancient world, salt was very common and yet a very valued commodity. It was used for all types of beneficial purposes. The Greeks had a word for salt that was similar to being divine. It was a word that was related to divinity. The Romans had a saying that nothing is more useful than sun and salt. There were times when Roman soldiers were paid with salt. It was called their salarium. And you can hear the word salary in that. That's where we got our word salary. It was from them being paid in salt. 
It's also where the saying came from, he is not worth his salt. He's not worth his salary. You gave him a bunch of salt for his work, and his work wasn't worth salt. That's where this idea comes from. Salt is used metaphorically throughout the Bible. It's used to speak of medicinal value and purpose. In Ezekiel chapter 16, when God describes the nation of Israel being cast away by the nations on earth without any hope or or help, without any medicinal benefit being applied to that that infant child, God says, I came along and helped you, but you were thrown out into the weeds without any salt being rubbed on you. It's also used to be involved in ceremonies and sacrifices. It's used in covenant ceremonies as well as as a symbol of purity and certainty. But salt's primary function in ancient economies was with food, and we still see it used that way today. It flavors food. It makes food savory so that it is more delectable and desirable than it would be without. It makes things palatable. And we see this use of salt in Paul's language in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, when he tells us that we are to let our speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. With grace or gracious. What, what does that mean? Well, it means better than you deserve. So if I'm a Christian following Jesus in the way I talk, I'm to talk to you better than you deserve. I'm to be gracious in my speech. But I'm also, but I'm also to have my speech seasoned with salt. That is, I'm to think about the way that I say things and try to say them in a way that will make my words attractive. So that even if I have to say hard things to you, it will be savory and you'll want to come back for more. That's the image in Paul's mind when he refers to salt attending our speech. But salt was not only used to season food. Salt was also used to preserve food, especially meat. It was necessary in ancient economies to have salt employed in the preservation of meat because they didn't have refrigeration like we do. And whenever you take fresh meat and you begin to prepare it, it immediately begins to break down and decay because of bacteria. And the salt, if it's rubbed into the meat, will retard the work of the bacteria. It will retard the decay and decomposition. Because of this, salt was valued to help sustain life, to help provide meat beyond the immediate time that an animal would be slaughtered for its meat. Salt does its preserving work in retarding putrefaction of meat very subtly, very quietly, very secretly. There's no fanfare in its work. And what what does all this mean for us today? Well, salt teaches us something about our world. When Jesus says that we are to be the salt of the earth, we are the salt of the earth, he's telling us that our world is in a state of moral and spiritual decay. In one sense, the analogy is like decaying meat that needs to be preserved. And it's it's not a pretty picture. And if you've seen rotten, putrefied meat, you know that it's not. But the picture we have in Genesis 3 is not pretty either. 
God created the world. It, it was just right. Everything was good. And Adam and Eve sinned. Evil came into the world and sin began, began to putrefy. Sickness came into the world. Cancer came into the world. Death came into the world. Lies and adultery and divorce and murder, all these things came into the world. And the world began to go on its course away from God, away from his standard of righteousness. And we see even within a few generations, God's response to the brokenness and the wickedness of this rot. And we see it in Genesis chapter 6. Whenever God chooses Noah to preserve a remnant from the world. In Genesis 6, listen to what is said in verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This understanding of the world is contrary to the evolutionary thought that has permeated the Western, Western civilization over the past 150 years. The idea that the world is getting better and better, that things are always improving. Science, of course, is always going to come up with the right answer, right? Technology is better. iOS 16 is better than iOS 15, right? We just look forward to the advances technologically and scientifically. And that suggests a worldview that doesn't take the Bible seriously, that things are just getting better. But Scripture says that that's not the case. Scripture indicates that sin is working in this world and will continue to work in this world, putrefying what God has designed it to be, what he originally created to be good. So we learn about the world from this metaphor. But more than that, we learn what our response is to be in such a world. Jesus says, in this world, you are salt. That is, you combat degradation. You stand against the putrefaction, the moral degradation of the world. Do you ever find yourself getting discouraged when you just keep reading about and seeing evil in the world? You know, the murder rates that go up in a certain place in the world and the war that we see and the, the lies at the highest levels of society and the wickedness that just seems to become normalized? Do you ever find yourself tempted to just become pessimistic? Well, Jesus is saying here that we are not to give in to fatal pessimism. We're not to buy into this view that says, well, this is just the way it is and it's going to keep going that way. No. Jesus says you are salt. You have what it takes to retard this. You are to stand against this. And notice what he says. He doesn't say, I want you to be salt. He doesn't command us to be salt. You see what he says? You are salt. If you're a Christian, by virtue of your connection to God through Jesus Christ, you are a factor in this world that is designed by God to stand against the moral degradation of society. To be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ is to live on the basis of his revelation, his rules, his priorities. To do what he says ought to be done. 
to value what he says ought to be valued and love what he loves. One of the areas where this is greatly needed in our day is standing against what the world is doing with our children. We see it in school activities. We see it in sporting events where the world suggests that our children are just to operate like everybody else's children. And if activities are planned on the Lord's day, so be it. It's the way of the world. If this conflicts with what we as Christian parents desire for our children, then we're just told that that's the way it is. Recently read a a report from a pastor who was talking about a teenage girl in his congregation. And she was uh, part of a drama class at her high school. And she, she was a member of her high school drama team. And they had planned to have a production of a play. And she tried out for the lead role, and she won the lead role in that play. So her and her, her parents, they were greatly delighted by this, and they worked hard for her to get her lines down. And there were months of rehearsals and practices, and about six weeks or so before the play was to be performed, the teacher announced that they were going to have the performance on Sunday. Without even telling her parents about it, this young lady sat down and wrote a letter to her drama teacher saying, You know, I love this play. I'm happy to be involved in it. I'm glad I've won the lead part, but I can't do this. I will not perform on the Lord's Day. It will go against what I know to be true and right in my devotion to Jesus Christ, and it will mess up my commitment to Christ. And she said, now, I don't want to create problems. I I want to work with my understudy so that she gets all of her lines down. And thank you for this letting me have this great opportunity to practice and rehearse, and I'll be supportive in any way that I can. Well, her parents didn't know anything about the letter. And the drama teacher, she takes the letter and goes to the administration of the school and discusses it with them. And then the students begin to find out about this. And so all the other actors and actresses in the play say, this isn't right, we don't want this. She worked hard to learn all of these lines and to practice for this. We can't, can't we do something about this? And through their petitioning, through their request, the school decided to cancel the performance of the play. She didn't protest. She didn't raise Cain. She didn't go to the news and talk about how she was being persecuted as a Christian. She was just being salt. The world's going this way, and I'm not going to go that way. I belong to a faithful Savior, and I live according to his rules. This is what Christ calls us to be and to do. He calls us to live as salt to retard the rotting of the world because of sin. But he just doesn't call us salt. He calls us light as well. Jesus' disciples are to be light in a darkened world. This is in verses 14 and 15. And Here's the metaphor. You are the light of the world. Now, light is commonly employed in the Bible. Jesus said, I am the light of the world in John 8, 12. When he came into the world, he was described as being light who came into darkness. He is the great light that has shined upon a world in darkness. In Matthew chapter 4, In verse 16, 
Matthew draws upon Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 9 to provide a commentary on Jesus' public ministry. And this is what he says. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Christians are described as being translated out of the power of darkness and brought into this new kingdom of the Son of God's love, which is a kingdom of light. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul instructs the church at Ephesus, the Christians there, to see themselves as light in the Lord, to live as children of light, and to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Now again, this is another statement of fact. Jesus doesn't say, I want you to try hard to be light. He doesn't say, I command you to be light. He says, you are light. You are the light of the world. So if you are a disciple of Jesus, you are light in the world. You're not light. If you're not light in the world, as scripture sets it forth, then there is great cause to ask yourself if you are a disciple of Jesus. What's the significance and purpose of light? Light is used in the Bible metaphorically to refer to revelation, to refer to truth and knowledge, to purity. First and foremost, the the significance of light is to be seen. Therefore, Jesus says what he does in verse 15 in the first part of it, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. Light is not functional if it's hidden. It does not fulfill its purpose if it's kept under wraps because light dispels darkness. That's its purpose. When light comes on, darkness dissipates. You carry a lantern into a dark room and what happens? You can see things. Darkness is pushed back. And that's the whole point. Light also gives direction to show people the right way. And we see this in our own lives, the way we use light. Ancient mariners used light from the, uh, to navigate by the stars. The wise men who came to where Jesus was after his birth by following the light that was in the sky. And light can also be used as a warning in lighthouses to warn ships that they should not come near. And we see in the lights put, put on things high in the sky to warn pilots not to fly nearby. When Jesus describes his followers as salt and light, he's speaking to us what is reality. You are this. He's also speaking to us very emphatically. The way he says it, it could be literally translated here, you and you only are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Nobody else. Think about this. If you're a Christian, think about this. All the scientists, all the artists, all the educators and the philosophers and politicians, all the people who are the movers and shakers in the world, and Jesus said among them, you are salt, you are the light. Well, this should cause us to understand the significance of our role in the world more clearly. 
As we see darkness approaching more and more spiritually and morally, wickedness spreading throughout society, rather than becoming despondent and discouraged and pessimistic, we should see this as the setting of the stage for, for a great opportunity that we have to be light and salt in the world. To see Christ's work carried on through us in the midst of a very needy world. Brothers and sisters, we're, we're not just living in a postmodern society, as sociologists remind us, but we're increasingly living in a post-Christian society. A society that once knew the righteousness of God once regarded his commandments, once had some respect for his person, but now has intentionally forgotten and continually rejects that. And we see the lunacy and the wickedness promoted and celebrated in our culture and places without any boundaries. Many of you have probably heard of a man named Richard Dawkins. uh, He's a so-called biological ethicist an evolutionary biologist, and he's probably the world's most famous living atheist. And he spent much of his life in talking about what he thinks the Christian, that he thinks the Christian religion is a mass delusion, calling the raising of Christian children child abuse. And he influences millions around the world and is seen by them as an eminent scientist. And as if all this wasn't bad enough, he said a few years ago that we should not condemned, condemn what he calls mild pedophilia. Mild pedophilia. And indicated that mild molestation of children is no cause for alarm. And this is supposedly one of the smartest men in the world. His attitude is a perfect picture of the moral rot that is so prevalent in the intellectual elite in our society. And is it any surprise that we have seen the rise of drag queen story hour and other sexual perversions in the West and in our nation with people like Dawkins as our thought leaders? What are we to do when we see the darkness rising? When we see the moral rot of the world? When we see sin running rampant and unchecked? When night is falling? Brothers and sisters, it's just for for a time such as this that God has called us to be salt and light. That's why we're here. And rather than looking at that and condemning that and running away from it and standing back and just complaining about it, we need to march to the sound of the guns. This is where the battle is. This is where the opportunity is. This is what is needed. What God has done for us, what he's shown us, what he's given us in Jesus, that's what the world needs. It needs the truth that sets people free. It needs the the revelation that transforms life. It needs the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news that God has entrusted to us and that Jesus reminds us As stewards, we are salt and we are light. One commentator explains it like this. When Jesus came into the world, 
He is the ultimate great true light, the source of all light. And it was like the light of the noonday sun, shining bright. And as he called men and women to himself, he calls us to be reflectors of his light. And now, as he rules and reigns in heaven, he still is the source of all light. And he still is like the sun in the noonday sky. You and I do do not have light in ourselves. But as we are connected to Jesus, we're like the moon. We reflect his light in the way that we live. We're able to show people the source of the true light. We're able to live in a way and make judgments in a way and and able to have our values and priorities in a way that point to the reality that we are citizens of a kingdom that is not of this world. That there's something far greater than anything this world has to offer that animates us, that has gripped us, that moves us. Well, Jesus' disciples are salt in a decaying world and light to a darkened world, but also, I want you to see from the text that Jesus' disciples must be on guard to fulfill our calling in the world. We are salt and light, and we must be on guard because there is a danger of forfeiting our spiritual usefulness as salt and light. And we, we see this in verse 13. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing to be, but be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And then in verse 15, the Lord says, Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. Now, in, in Jesus' day and before that, most of the salt that they would have in that area was mined from the Dead Sea. And there, there was a danger in bringing salt from the Dead Sea that it would be corrupted and mixed in with other minerals, gypsum most notably. And if you got some salt mixed with gypsum, then you couldn't use it to preserve meat because it was noxious. It would ruin the meat. You couldn't use it to flavor your food because it was dangerous. You couldn't even throw it out into the field because it would kill the grass. You couldn't put it in in a compost pile. The only place for that salt that had been corrupted was on the roadway, the place where people would walk so it would get pressed down into the dirt because it wasn't fit for anything else. If you've got a bright light and you put it under a bucket, what good is it? Its ability to shine is completely voided. It doesn't matter how many lumens it has or how bright it may be. If it's covered up, it's not doing what it was designed to do. I remember years ago I, brought, uh, I bought a small flashlight, one of those mini-mag flashlights to have for trips and emergencies. And I would carry it in, in a pouch And I also would put change that I had in that pouch. And one day when I went to get that flashlight and use it, a quarter that was in the bag got stuck on the lens. So when I went to use the flashlight, no light came out. So this mini mag flashlight that I'd bought for for just a purpose like this wasn't putting out any light. It was useless to me. And so... 
Just like that, Jesus warns his disciples to guard against forfeiting our usefulness in his kingdom work in the world. Either by becoming contaminated by the world system, its way of thinking apart from God, or by living in ways that prevent people from hearing the message of the gospel from us and seeing the power of the gospel in us. Salt loses its usefulness through contamination. It was only beneficial to the degree that it retains distinctiveness from other elements. Sometimes in our desire to be helpful to the world, we we buy into the ways of the unbelieving world. We think that by doing so, we will identify with them and we can somehow relate to them better. When in reality, what we're doing is we're compromising our distinctiveness as belonging to Jesus and actually losing every opportunity to influence them for spiritual good. There are just some things that people that don't know Christ, there's just things that they, that they believe and think that are okay that we cannot go along with. We, we can't. We have a different master. We have a Lord who has spoken to us about his way, and his way has become our way. Light becomes useless when it is kept hidden. When that light is hidden, when we refuse to speak for Christ and seize the opportunities that he gives us to make known, make him known to friends and to neighbors and to classmates and to co-workers, whatever it might be. And no matter how bright the light, if it's hidden, it's useless. Are we hiding our light? We can all be guilty of that in different ways. When we don't recognize opportunities, when we don't look for opportunities to live as salt and light in our communities, we will forfeit the opportunity we have when we fall into patterns that are no different than the unbelieving people around us. So that our values and our patterns of life, what we do with our time and our money and our children and our relationships are no different than those who don't know Christ. We can forfeit our ability to shine light in a dark world when we live such insulated lives that the testimony of Christ's saving power is never seen or heard by those who need it most. So we must guard against forfeiting our usefulness as salt and light. But also, we must heed our responsibility to point people to the light, to Jesus Christ. Do you see what Jesus says? Here's his admonition. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What does that mean? Brothers and sisters, it means that we need to live in the power of the gospel. We need to consciously think about choices that we're making with our lives. What we're doing and order our values according to the values of Jesus Christ. Order our lives so that we demonstrate that we are really citizens of another kingdom. We are to carry out deeds of kindness that arise from true love for our neighbors. Loving people the way that we have been loved. 
we need to so live in ways that people will see the things that we do, not because we're trying to manipulate them or trying to get something from them, but because having been loved, we love. And seeing the things that we do will commend not us, but commend the source of that love that is working in us. And this means that we need to live in relationship with unbelievers. Do you see what Jesus says here in the text? Before men, not behind closed doors, live in a way that gives access to others to gain a glimpse of the patterns of our life so that they can hear and see our dependence and devotion to Jesus Christ. This can happen at work. It can happen in recreation. It can happen in the classroom. It can happen at the grocery store. It can happen in any number of places where we could take this, including our homes. Though we are salt, though we are light, our light will not shine, our salt will not flavor if we are insulated and isolated from others. Our light will not shine if we're not intentionally engaging unbelievers in thoughtful and friendly, loving ways. To have people who don't know Jesus just as real friends. Learning to be real friends and not to look down on people, but to love them. They're made in God's image, just as we are. Their needs are our needs. And inviting them into our lives, letting them into our home where we pray before we eat. And they hear us pray. It's not a show, it's what we do. Or when you're out at a restaurant and you pray before a meal, thanking God for the food, you can just ask the server or the person, is it okay if I pray? Is there anything I can pray for you about? Have you ever thought about how many people in the world there are that have never had somebody ask them if they could pray for them? May I pray for you? We were going to pray. Is it okay if I pray for you? Letting them just get a glimpse of the pattern of life that belongs to you because of your relationship to Jesus Christ. Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Not glorify you, but your Father in heaven. Oh, you're such a good guy. You do so many good things. Look, God has been a God of grace to me. He's changed my life. If there's anything that's come to you through me, it's because of Him. I would love for you to know Him. I'd love to tell you about Him. How will people see our good works and glorify God? How will people come to glorify God as a result of being around us? Here's what Jesus is saying. We're to live in such a way that people who do not know him will find our lives attractive. One of the things that is so challenging to me and condemning to me is to look and see how attractive Jesus' life was while he was on earth. Just read the Gospels and you'll see it in every page. 
You know, prostitutes love to hang around Jesus. Tax collectors who were hated by everybody. They enjoyed being in his presence. In fact, the religious leaders got upset with Jesus and said, this guy is a friend of sinners. This guy eats with sinners. Sinners just seemed to be okay in his presence. They weren't repulsed by him. Why was that? Well, a lot, a lot of people would have you believe it's because Jesus had a hip, cool message that, that, that appealed to them and that he was just accepting them in their sin. But that's not the case. He didn't compromise with them. He's the Son of God. But he didn't come to condemn the world. The world is already condemned. He came to show the way of life. He came on a mission to make God known. He came on a mission to have people who are part of this corrupted world, this darkened world, this broken world, restored and made right to God, right with God. And we're his disciples. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple of the Son of God, this man Jesus. And our lives ought to commend him. And we need to seek and live in ways that reflect him as he lived. Which means we are to think more consciously of what it means to be salt and light. So that like our Lord, we can go in the world and live among people not like us and not condemn them, not look down our noses at them, but point them to the real source of life and light. Unafraid, unafraid, unintimidated, honest, aware that because we are what we are because of God's grace and that God's grace is powerful enough to reach even what the world might consider the most hopeless case. That's what we need. That's what it means to be light and to be salt. Well, the applications of the Lord's teaching to be salt and light are vast, and they, they might even be unending. And we ought to think about ways we can fulfill our calling in light of these metaphors, these metaphors that he chose to describe our relationship to the world. But far more important than any specific application, more fundamental than any one application is the unavoidable truth that this text forces us to confront, and it's this we will never rightly see our responsibilities as disciples of Jesus Christ until we come to realize that to live for Christ is to live for the world. Do you see that? It's, they're not two different things. To live for Christ is to live for the world. We're salt. We're light. You can't understand that apart from the world. And Jesus is teaching us here that as disciples who follow him, we must live intentionally out of devotion to him, for him. We must live intentionally for those who are not his disciples. By our words, our deeds, we are to commend the Lord Jesus to other people. We're to point them to the one who alone can change life and help them how to see his life, his death, his resurrection, 
see that as the only way that they can ever be rightly connected to their creator. That their sins can be forgiven, but only because of Jesus. And that if they look to Jesus and turn from their sins and bow to him as Lord, then they can know the power of a new life. They can know the freedom of sins forgiven. They can know what it means to finally know that they are reconciled to the God who made them. That's the message we have. That's the light that we bear. And it's very important that you ask yourselves, we we need to all examine ourselves and ask, have we experienced this? And maybe you are here today and you have never been reconciled to the God who created you. Maybe you know about it and you've heard about it a few or many times, but you've never come to see and embrace this with faith. My plea for you, my desire for you, my prayer for you is that you will come to see Jesus Christ as the one who gives life and the only one in whom you will find forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God, peace with your creator. Brothers and sisters, I hope that we will take this challenge seriously, the opportunity to live in the world as salt and light, pointing people to Jesus Christ by what we do and say. He's divided history. He transforms people, and he will ultimately transform the world. And we need to tell people of him. Living for Christ means living for the world. If we're not willing to do that, then we're like someone who has a light but hides it under a bucket. Or we're like salt that gets contaminated and is useless for anything but to be walked on. As I close, I want to leave you with the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones commenting on this text. Christian people, you and I are living in the midst of men and women who are in a state of gross darkness. They will never have any light anywhere in this world except from you and from me and the gospel we believe and teach. They are watching us. Do they see something different about us? Are our lives a silent rebuke to them? Do we live as to lead them to come and ask us, why do you always look so peaceful? How is it you are so balanced? How can you stand up to things as you do? Why is it you are not dependent on artificial aids and pleasures as we are? What is this thing you have got? If they do, we can tell them, that wondrous, amazing, but tragically neglected news that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and to give men a new nature and a new life and to make them children of God. Christian people alone are the light of the world today. Let us live and function as children of light.